it's sad to say, but I think our biggest challenge going forward with Keystone and every other project related to climate change is empathy. We need to have a greater degree of empathy for the people and their motivations in, in trying to pursue their self-interest um, as we try to raise global consciousness about a problem that affects us all. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, a completely student-run podcast out of T. Jones Hopkins University. My name is Franz Ocilia, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Julia Ang. On his first day in office, President Joe Biden revoked the Keystone Pipeline's permit, all but shutting down construction. But why did the Biden administration decide to do this? What has made the Keystone Pipeline so controversial in the United States? And what does that mean for the future of US-Canada relations? Joining us today on the podcast to answer these questions and more is Professor Christopher Sands. Dr. Christopher Sands is the director of the Wilson Center's Canada Institute and senior research professor and director for the Center for Canadian Studies at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Sands. It's a pleasure. Thank you, friends. Now, we constantly hear the Keystone XL pipeline being used as a buzzword, especially in American politics. That said, I think not a lot of people actually know what it actually entails. So could you give our listeners a very brief overview of the history of the pipeline and what is its purpose? Sure. So the, the Keystone Pipeline has four segments. Uh, it's use, useful to sort of keep those segments in mind. There is, if you, you will, Keystone One, which is a pipeline that goes from Alberta through Canada uh, out to Manitoba and then makes its way down to Chicago. The Midwest is one of the regions that uses energy fairly intensively, but does not have a great amount of naturally uh, located, co-located energy. So this pipeline has been operating since the early 2000s and is not controversial. There was a a second uh, pipeline that added capacity that came in from Wisconsin from Saskatchewan. So it added additional capacity still heading to the Midwest. And then there's three and four. And three was an attempt to move from that pipeline to a major oil hub in Cushing, Oklahoma, which is a, uh, it's an oil hub where a lot of pipelines come together, which would potentially give access for Keystone Energy to what they call pad three, which is an area that includes Texas and the Gulf Coast one of the areas farthest from Canada, and one that actually has a limited amount of normal uh, flow of this kind of heavy oil that Canada produces, not like light sweet crude that you have in Texas, but a a different kind of oil, which is used for different purposes, of course. And there was a segment of the Keystone XL, the, the last link, which increased access directly from Alberta into Montana, and was going to go all the way to the Gulf Coast. So there was a second section from Cushing, Oklahoma to Houston. And that that has actually made a lot of progress. The Houston to Cushing piece is there. What they need is a, an, a the part that goes into Montana, South Dakota, and then through Nebraska and Kansas to connect to Oklahoma that would bring more into the pipeline so you could get more to the Gulf Coast. And that's where we've seen the problems in Nebraska, in Montana, and of course, the the big debate about whether this additional link will actually uh, uh, cause damage to the environment or contribute to uh, greater fossil fuel use overall. Okay, so then over the last decade, 
like this pipeline has, as you said, been very contentious in the United States, um, especially with regards to climate policy. So could you tell us a little bit more about why this last link is so politicized? Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting, and and as with anything political, it, it all depends on where you, where you view this from. Um, from Alberta's position, they have this capacity in the oil sands of northern Alberta to produce as much as I think current plants five million barrels a day, which is a significant amount. The oil sands oil is is often difficult to extract. It's fairly far north and. Um, while there's about 20% of that oil, which is close to the surface, and so you strip mine it, um, which always looks bad in pictures, what what 80% of that oil is now in little pockets underground. And so it's, it's much less disruptive of the surface environment. And it is one of the biggest industries in Alberta. For them, a province with no access to the sea, it's pipelines that help them to get that oil to market. And it is other than agriculture, probably the biggest thing for Alberta. At the same time, um, Canada considered itself an environmental leader. And during the Obama administration, Canada joined, uh, then had Prime Minister Stephen Harper, uh, joined with the United States in trying to engage at UN climate talks in substantial reductions in carbon emissions. And, uh, those, those talks initially at Copenhagen produced relatively low targets, which were disappointing to a number of environmental groups. And Canada missed its targets. The US actually made those targets that we had set for ourselves because we had done so much to move away from, um, from fossil fuels and in particular coal. But for many Canadians, Alberta is kind of an embarrassment. They want to be very green. And yet here's this province continuing in the fossil fuel sector. For Alberta, they can't understand why they, everyone's happy to take their taxes, everyone's happy to take their money, but nobody wants them to actually make a living. And so you've got this breakdown in Canada, which makes this very political. In the United States, many environmental groups were disappointed in the Obama administration's progress at Copenhagen and identified this pipeline as the kind, kind of a symbol block this pipeline to show you really do understand and care about climate because this pipeline will increase the amount of oil that comes out of Canada. We, and many environmentalists rightly point out that there is a greater carbon intensity in production of oil sands oil, which we could talk about. So this is the stuff they wanted to take off the market. And they ran a campaign to challenge permits all the way along the long pipeline route, but in particular asked President Obama to deny a presidential permit that would permit this uh, permit would permit, of course, yes, uh, but a, it would permit the pipeline to cross the border. And we have a process in the United States that requires that there is a presidential permit for anything that crosses the border in terms of infrastructure, whether it's a bridge or a, or a road or uh, now, in this case, a pipeline. Okay, so you said that President Obama's decision to deny the permit is mostly because of the pressure from environmental groups to do more. Is that is that correct? I think that was the origin of the environmental groups asking President Obama to take action here. And the presidential permit process was wrapped in national security uh, language and um, because it came out of an executive order. And so at the time they asked the president to take this action back during his administration, 
it was it was a novel interpretation of national security to say that in the long run climate implications of this pipeline would damage us national security therefore justifying the president in denying the permit um, so it, it was original it was creative and and the president had to go through in a lengthy process several of the reviews to prepare for the decision didn't find significant impact from this pipeline that would warrant blocking the pipeline. Nonetheless, the president went ahead and rejected the permit. And as soon as Donald Trump uh, was elected, he very quickly used an executive order to grant the permit. But this is an important aspect. The process of presidential, presidential permits was created by executive orders. And when President Trump approved the pipeline, he did so with an executive order. And the problem with executive orders, as we're all discovering, because we've been doing this now for several administrations in a row, and the Biden administration too kind of came out with a lot of executive orders, is that unlike law, they can be reversed by the next president. So it's a very, in a way, a flimsy process if you really are looking for security because you're investing in a pipeline, it would be better to have something a bit more reliable, like you know, legislative approval or a process that could be challenged in court. Um, as this will be, uh, you can always challenge this in court. Nonetheless, once President Trump gave a presidential permit, the company that's building the pipeline, TC Energy, redoubled their efforts to try to complete it. And, um, and the court challenged the pipeline in Montana. There's a Montana injunction now on the pipeline. South Dakota had granted approval with a time limit. And so they had to re-up the approval uh, there. And of course, you, some of your listeners will know Nebraska, was the scene of a lot of local landowners trying to, to block the pipeline as well. And all that process continues, but President Trump's approval of the presidential permit allowed the project to start making real gains, unfortunately not to complete the pipeline entirely in time for the Biden administration. So what exactly was the thinking to reverse this decision from the Trump administration? Was it because of that interpretation of the national security was a little too creative, or is it because of like other U.S. interests? Sure, um, I think the Trump Trump administration focused on this in part because it had been a very high-profile issue, and it ran counter to what President Trump thought was in the national interest, which was, I think, in the terms of his uh, Secretary of Energy, his one-time Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, the former Texas governor, was to make the United States uh, energy dominant as a producer of oil uh, in particular with an export orientation around the world. Um, some of your listeners will remember that for a long time uh, following the 1970s energy crises, in particular the Arab oil embargo, the US had a ban on oil exports. And so it was, it was not possible for the U.S. to export its oil. All of that oil had to go to the U.S. market first. There were still imports. Um, Venezuela and uh, Mexico sent heavier oil to Gulf Coast refineries. And those refineries um, were, were specially sort of tuned to handle the heavier oil that they could get from those two Latin American countries. But because Venezuela's had political difficulties and uh, PDVSA, their state-run oil company was a target for Hugo Chavez, who wanted to take some of the money from that pro that company and use it for his diplomacy. Um, Venezuelan oil production had fallen sharply. And in Mexico, because of their um, 
their oil policy where they for a long time wouldn't let any foreign investment occur in the oil sector, which was changed under a recent president, Enrique Peña Nieto. But because of that, Mexico's production was also falling. And so in the very beginning for the Keystone Pipeline, the idea was that these refineries that employ you know, thousands of American workers could continue in business because instead of Venezuelan and Mexican oil, they would find Canadian oil, which is largely similar, and be able to keep their refining business going. So I think for President Trump, he was interested in seeing the US become an energy exporter. He was interested in permitting hydrofracturing, so that, or so-called fracking, to get more oil. Uh, and he achieved all those goals, but his first symbolic step was to say, Canada's a friend, their oil will help keep American jobs going in the South, in, in places like Texas and Louisiana, so I'm going to approve that. Um, he felt that the connection to climate was secondary. He was not himself uh, very much in support of climate action and famously decided to have the United States leave the Paris Agreement, um, something that was also on the short list of Biden reversals because he has moved already to try to get the United States back into the Paris Accord. So you can see this as a partisan fight, but the two worldviews that are clashing here are all really about priorities and, and how important are jobs for Americans? How important is the US as an energy exporter providing for a secure source of oil for our, our friends and allies? And how important is climate change action? And because the two presidents we've just had, including the one we have now, have taken different approaches to that question, their reaction to Keystone uh, followed suit. And I think that's the thing to, that's important about Keystone by itself. I think the review the State Department had done of the pipeline was right within a very limited area, that this pipeline is not significant in terms of its overall impact on, on climate change. But symbolically, it's very important. And for, for an American politician who thinks we've got to get America going again, we want to create jobs and we want energy independence, as in Trump, then it's important to see the pipeline go forward. For, symbolically, as a step towards that goal. For uh, presidents who are more concerned about climate change and really believe we need to make a transition to electric vehicles and, and decarbonize the economy to the extent we can, and that would be both Biden and Obama, this pipeline was a symbol of going in the wrong direction. And once you build the infrastructure, you become dependent on that. It, it, they really felt that that was, a, that was the wrong step. We should be putting our money and energy into some other kinds of uh, action. So I think that Fair, that's sort of fair in terms of, of balancing both sides. It's just a different perspective about what's more. And then, so I just have one more question regarding this like flip-flop between administrations. With the Biden administration now rescinding or trying to reverse this policy, I guess my question is, what happens to that part of the pipeline? You talked about how with President Trump, it started, um, progress started again. So does it just now sit like halfway done? What, what happens now? Right. So one of the interesting things about the way the presidential permits for Keystone have been set up is that they are both construction permits, but also operating permits. So the section that has been built that goes between Alberta and Montana has a permit and that permit has been rejected. So they cannot push oil through that part. And there's a there's a extension from that little bit that crosses the border that goes through Montana into South Dakota. That's the Keystone XL segment. Other segments of the pipeline were not covered by that permit and President Biden has not revoked the other permits that go in say through North Dakota or Minnesota. And so those parts of the Keystone pipeline uh, 
network are continuing to operate and are, are fairly important. And they're just, that's just one family of pipelines. There are other pipelines that cross back and forth across the border. So if you're TC Energy and you're building pipelines, you probably use the old parts of the pipeline that are already approved. You can't use the new parts. Maybe you continue to work on you know, resolving the issues and different bits of it. Uh, you can continue some of your construction inside the country. You can't change the part that crosses the border, that permit's denied, but in anticipation that perhaps at some point, if you have the licenses to build, say in Nebraska, you complete the Nebraska segment, they could continue to invest in that. But like any company, they're going to say, well, is this the best investment? Because we're putting all this money into building a pipeline that in the end may never get the go to be able to be used. And so they may look to put their capital into other projects. Um, TC Energy does a lot of oil and gas pipeline work in Mexico. They have some projects elsewhere in the United States. There are other pipeline producers um, like uh, Trans Mountain, which is building a pipeline or expanding a pipeline that goes now from uh, Calgary in towards Vancouver to get to the sea, and they may have other projects. So from the company point of view, it, it definitely means they have to evaluate this on whether it's been a good investment and where else they could put their money and keep their people busy. If you're Alberta, this is, this is a more existential problem. One of the biggest drivers of your economy is the oil and gas sector. You have invested as a province, taxpayer money, in an ownership stake in this pipeline. And you've also invested heavily in carbon capture and storage and other aspects of, of trying to lower the carbon intensity of your fuel because you wanted to contribute to climate change uh, in a positive way. Even though you did have oil, you wanted to make the best product that you could. So for that province and for its population where unemployment's now above 11%, they need to find a way to get their resource to a market. And they can continue to bang against Keystone, which is a fight that's been had now for almost 20 years, and, and potentially win. But they might also say, you know, we need new options. Look at pipelines they could build going all within Canada. There was a proposal for an Energy East pipeline that would go through to Halifax and Montreal and ship from there. You could try to move your oil north through the Mackenzie Valley of Northwest Territories to try to get it to an Arctic port. It's a long way from markets. There's, there are proposals to bring it to Hudson Bay and then to try to move it from Hudson Bay by ship. And of course, perennially different proposals to try to move it through Vancouver to the West Coast or through British Columbia anyway to the West Coast. That's the challenge now. And what unfortunately has been happening in Alberta is that their production exceeds their ability to both ship and store. And so five years ago, during the earlier rounds of the Keystone pipeline disaster, you know, debate, um, they began storing as much oil as possible, but the government of Alberta said, we're producing so much, we're running out of storage. And so they bought rail cars to be able to move as much oil by rail as possible. It's not as efficient. It's certainly not as environmentally friendly. And it can be hazardous if there's an, you know, a rail derailment or a rail crash, as we saw in a Quebec town called Lac Megantic, where there, the whole town was blown up because uh, of a rail crash uh, that ignited the petroleum that was in it. So there are a lot of risks, but that is one option. And they can look at new projects and try to negotiate new ways to get to, uh, to the sea, or they can try to figure out different ways to, to handle um, the oil, maybe sell it in different format. The problem for Alberta, though, is they're landlocked and 
they have not received great support from their fellow provinces, sometimes feel that, that Ottawa doesn't particularly share their concerns. And so their hope was the US would be like-minded and want to be neighborly and want to be friendly and that we would help them. But as they've now seen, there's no, there's no guarantee that every pipeline that they propose to get through the US will get approval. So I think Alberta, unlike the company, which can make a different investment decision, Alberta, this is, this is their resource. They have to decide how can we continue to operate and exist. And that's a great segue to our next question, which um, now that we have covered the politics of the pipeline in the United States, I think it's also important to dive deeper into the politics of the pipeline in Canada. So uh, could you tell us a little bit more what has been the Can Canadian government's stance on the Keystone Pipeline, especially after the transition from the Harper to the Trudeau administration? And has this domestic debate in the U.S. affected relations between the two countries? Well, for many years uh, within Canada, uh, revenue that came from Alberta oil and energy products, including some natural gas, etc., made Alberta the biggest contributor to Canadian GDP, outstripping even Ontario for several years. Um, the way that Canada operates, the federal government collects taxes, uh, income taxes, and then redistributes some of that to provincial governments who have limited sources of their own revenue. And this process is both a way of distributing the income, but also redistributing the income. And so there is something in a tradition in Canada called equalization payments, where the gov federal government in Ottawa will top up provinces uh, transfers in order that even smaller provinces can provide an equivalent level of say healthcare, education, or even physical infrastructure and transportation, all of which are provincial responsibilities funded by the federal government with conditional transfers. For a while, Alberta was the largest net contributor to this program. And so the money that came from Alberta in taxes was redistributed to places like Newfoundland and Prince Edward Island, smaller provinces with smaller economies that benefited because they were able to um, uh, enjoy transfers from Alberta through the federal government. This is one of the reasons that the politics of these pipelines has been so difficult in Canada because Alberta feels fair enough, we contribute our taxes and we've been fortunate. So we wanna see some of this money go to other provinces. But we then expect that when we just need to build a pipeline to get our oil to sea, that provinces like British Columbia or, or Quebec will go along with that because they know that we're in this together as one country. That ideal has never been met. And many of the provinces who have a much more climate focused population have done what they could to block Alberta's ability to use transit through their territory to get to the sea. Something that's very frustrating for, um, for Alberta. Stephen Harper, although born in Ontario, had built his political career in the West and particularly in Alberta. He went to the University of Calgary for, for grad school and for undergraduate. And, um, and so while he was prime minister, it was almost assumed like he understood Alberta's complaint and he did what he could to expand production and uh, greening that production to the extent you could decarbonize it, but then was an aggressive salesperson trying to sell Canadian oil, not only in the United States, but elsewhere. Justin Trudeau comes from a different political party, not a conservative, but a liberal. And his roots are much stronger on the climate debate and climate change. And it was the Kretchen government that went into the Kyoto Accords and so on. And it, 
it was the Harper government that went to Paris, but as a, as a skeptic, Justin Trudeau was very clear he wanted to embrace the Paris Accords. He made sure Canada was fully signed on and has worked to invest, even in this difficult time post-COVID, as much budget dollar as he could put into alternative energy. And so in a way, this sets up a political dilemma. Trudeau has a minority government, so he does not have a clear majority in parliament of seats. He's going to face an election. He would like to call it this spring or possibly this fall. That's the rumor in Ottawa. But he has one province in which he has no support, no seats at all, and that's Alberta, that is uh, asking him to help defend the Keystone Pipeline. The Trudeau government blocked the Energy East Pipeline that TC Energy had proposed. They did not approve um, pipelines going to the West Coast, although they ended up allowing the TC Energy Pipeline, uh, not TC Energy, a TMX Pipeline, Trans Mountain, to be expanded to Vancouver over the objections of British Columbia, but it's a very mixed bag. Many Albertans feel he doesn't have his heart in defending them, and he's just going through the motions. And I suspect many Albertans also feel that when Pre President Biden issued an executive order canceling the Keystone Pipeline, that Justin Trudeau put up only you know, perfunctory complaint because he valued the relationship with Biden uh, on other issues. So what's happened is, is the politi politics of this pipeline within Canada have become quite poisonous between East and West, between Quebec and Ontario, the, the largest provinces by population, and the Western provinces and, and their dreams of becoming energy exporters. Even British Columbia is talking about a major LNG facility that would sell LNG around the Pacific Rim. So BC isn't entirely green on that. They actually have an interest in this as well. And that is that is straining the entire Canadian Federation, polariz polarizing their politics. And now the US, for its own reasons, has kind of exacerbated that uh, political polarization at a time when the Canadian economy, like the US economy, is on its back because of COVID. So it's, um, it's a big issue and it's a tense one in Canada, just as it is in the United States. So if the United States does not approve the pipeline and the Canadian government continues to uh, focus their attention on renewable energies and blocking the development of other pi pipelines, such as the Energy East and and other ones to the West. What then do you think Alberta can do? In what other ways could they utilize and transport these massive reserves of crude oil that they have, or crude bitumen um, that they have laying around? So this is um, this is an important debate, and I think it, it isn't a question of one or the other, but finding as many options as, as you can. So I think one area that that would be promising is because the Keystone Pipeline was trying to get the oil uh, to be refined in the United States, there's been some discussion of increasing refinery capacity in Canada in order to refine uh, more oil. Um, that would upgrade the oil in Canada, um, allow it to be sold within Canada, um, and then perhaps they could build pipelines to get this to market in another way. So, so that would be one thing. Bring some of those jobs home. Don't rely on the Gulf Coast refineries. You tried, that didn't work. So see what you can refine and then move normal oil or already refined oil to market. The problem there is that many states, not just uh, foreign governments, but even U.S. states, including California, have very strict requirements. And so typically you refine oil for that market specifically. And so that can be tricky to, to refine it at source. It's much easier to refine it at destination, but that will be one of the options that they'll look at. Uh, a second thing they might look to do is recognize that we're coming out of a period of, of COVID 
induced financial crisis. And that, and I think this has some promise, make the case, which I think you can do, that countries like Peru, uh, Malaysia, countries around the Pacific Rim that would like to go all green, all electric, but are, are not there now, need a transition fuel because as they come out of recession, they won't have the money to invest in an alternative energy economy. And so the goal will be to get them oil products that are the least worst. And if Alberta is willing to commit to decarbonizing that oil and making it as, as responsible as possible, that Alberta could be a contributor as a bridge fuel. And we've made this argument in the United States about, about natural gas as better than coal. Could we come up with an understanding of Alberta as not a bad solution, uh, not a permanent one either, but that it could have a role in transition. And if Alberta is able to position itself that way and get a response from other countries that says, yes, we would really like to work with you, that would be a different way of selling their oil and they might try that. A third option and one that Alberta is considering now would be to look at hydrocarbons, including oil and gas, as a source of hydrogen which can be split off and then used in fuel cells as part of the electrification of transportation. This has potential because this is something that's a big priority for both the Biden administration and the Trudeau government. Both Canada and the US have hydrogen strategies. Hydrogen is a little tricky to move. There are some challenges, but it could mean that fuel cells might be manufactured in Alberta as a whole new industry building on their hydrocarbons. There's a challenge there too, because hydrogen that is generated from water using electrolysis is you know, per unit much more expensive, but it's also greener and doesn't have any uh, carbon uh, input. But what's interesting here is that by storing the carbon using the carbon caption storage technology that, that Alberta invested in and helped to develop would allow it to be a zero emission um, source of hydrogen. And that has the potential in an era when we're starting to talk about net zero uh, getting to net zero, which doesn't mean zero, but means net zero, where you try to really uh, lower your overall emissions. So Alberta could try to reposition itself for the times, uh, find ways to contribute to the greening of the economy. But what I think we can't expect Alberta to do is to give up. Uh, this this is resource wealth that uh, that has helped keep the province going, and it's um, it's something they have every right to try to pursue, um, even if we do try to block them, or we don't try, but if the U.S. and, and its neighbors try to block it from getting to market, uh, it's reasonable to expect them to try to find ways around that. Um, there are also, and, and maybe this goes into the longer term, there are also fossil fuel applications that don't involve emissions because they don't involve combustion. One of those, which is familiar to everyone now, is um, asphalt. You don't think about it, but unlike a cement highway, asphalt is um, is largely a petroleum-derived product. Similarly, as um, Dustin Hoffman was told in the Graduate movie, plastics plastics often begin with a um, with a petrochemical base. And so, there are things that you can do with hydrocarbons that don't necessarily contribute directly to depletion of the ozone layer and and the shift in the climate. Obviously, plastics have to be recycled. There's lots, lots to talk about there, but there are other things you can do with this resource. And I think we can expect Alberta to try to find additional markets uh, if that's the only way that they can uh, profit off of this resource wealth that they've been lucky enough to have. So we've talked a lot about how environmental concerns are at the forefront of this debate over the Keystone um, XL pipeline. 
But there have also been contentious disputes with indigenous groups in both the U.S. and Canada regarding the pipeline. So could you speak briefly about what these disputes are about? It, it's interesting. And, and there is a degree to which it's different in the United States versus Canada. Um, but indigenous groups have been um, approached by environmental groups as natural allies um, in attempting to clean up the environment. In, the, in Canada, the native population, uh, what they call First Nations, um, has typically been nomadic going all the way uh, back before the time of European settlement. And so uh, small communities ranged over large amounts of territory. And as uh, European settlement moved west in the Canadian part of North America, what was then British North America, um, the British negotiated treaties with the sovereign nations, that's why we call them the First Nations, uh, represented uh, that represented indigenous people to recognize the sovereignty of the great chief over the water, the King of England, um, but to agree to live co peacefully and coexist with uh, European settlement, which, which has worked out reasonably well up until the 1960s. By the 1960s, many of these First Nations communities um, had settled, they were no longer nomadic, and they settled in communities that um, where their traditional way of life was supplemented by the fact that they could buy things in the store. But there was an economic development challenge for many of those communities. What could you do in the place that they had settled, often fairly remote, to make money in order to have a comparable lifestyle to people living in the, in the South, uh, European-derived settlers and even Asian-derived settlers? And Hydro-Quebec uh, actually inadvertently uh, built a hydroelectric dam that sparked a big debate. And after a number of court cases, Hydro-Quebec began transferring um, resource rents to the Cree people who lived in the area of the, of the dam. And overnight, the Cree people became one of the wealthiest indigenous groups in Canada, which set Canadian indigenous communities on a path to trying to come up with clear land title through land claims negotiations. By doing that, they could charge resource rents for logging, for fishing, um, for mining, and participate in an economy with the wealth that that would generate. They've been much more, as a result, pro-development over the years in Canada than, than we've seen in the United States. In the United States, it was often war that determined rights for indigenous communities when they were defeated by the US Army and then consigned to a reservation. Where they have a claim to land, they can still try to adjudicate that in court, but they're the claims in the United States are often not about title to the land, but about disturbing uh, historic burial grounds or, or other sites where there should be some respect to the historical value. So the U.S. Native community has not got the same amount of legal punch that the Canadian community does, the indigenous community, but both of them have broad public sympathy. And that has been valuable for environmentalists where they've been able to ally with this community in order to try to convince people that not only are we despoiling the land and the long-term environment, but that we are doing some damage to indigenous communities which um, deserve more respect. So there's, a, there's an element to which they have been drawn into this debate for some almost as props. And I think that has been something that even within indigenous communities has been hotly debated. And we've certainly seen that in Canada where some communities want the economic development dollars and are accused by others as having 
um, sold out to oil companies and others in their community have turned around and said, no, the environment is our long-term interest. And this has been really divisive for indigenous communities, both in Canada and I suspect in the United States as well. But there's no, there's no doubting that those communities have, have some, should have some say in this process, um, which is operating very differently in both countries. Professor Sands, we usually like to end our podcast by looking towards the future. Now, with that said, what does the future of the Keystone XL pipeline look like, in your opinion? I, th I think that what the Keystone pipeline has done before, sort of in a, in a way by accident, is raised our awareness that as we pursue global climate solutions, uh, trying to address problems with other nations worldwide, where every little project, every contribution has to matter because of what the importance of what we have to do. We have to balance that against um, local needs and communities that want a right to make a living and survive. This has been an, a fascinating case where grassroots activists on both sides, pro and con the pipeline, find themselves struggling for the approval of people far away from them, not local people, but even global elites. And I think there's something wrong with that politics. The global negotiations on climate change must be reworked to have some empathy for, for people and the jobs that they have and the livelihood that they would like to pursue. And at the same time, when we make local decisions, it's not enough just to make them in, in regard to a, you know, a pipeline which might need an easement that's only 50 feet wide. You have to make a decision locally with a cognizance of the larger community. And our politics have not spanned those levels of analysis well. And I think what you're seeing in, in the US case uh, on Keystone is a system that is being strained to the limit where local permitting processes that were always designed for amateur interveners, you know, the, the local people who are living next door to the pipeline who are worried about what it'll do to their property values or how it'll affect agriculture are competing with well-organized uh, national, sometimes international uh, interveners, uh, lobbyists, if you will, with good lawyers and <clears throat> great shoes and all that. And they, they can draw out the process and make it impossible to get to a decision. This is a, this is a problem. We have to be able to make decisions that are legitimate and inclusive of everyone. And as these processes compete to move us forward on climate, I think the future is that we need to have a more inclusive, truly inclusive of both critics and opposition, as well as advocates and activists uh, that helps us as a community move forward. And so that climate is less divisive for our societies and more, more able to bring us together. But that means that we cannot finance the future of climate on the jobs of poorer people and working class people who live along you know, an energy route or who have a stake in a resource that they have every right to try to sell. It, it's sad to say, but I think our biggest challenge going forward with Keystone and every other project related to climate change is empathy. We need to have a greater degree of empathy for the people and their motivations in, in trying to pursue their self-interest um, as we try to raise global consciousness about a problem that affects us all. Professor Sands, it was an excellent discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. I'm a fan. I'm a subscriber. And uh, I really enjoy the, the great discussions that you've brought forward. And I'm, uh, I'm 
I probably won't listen to my own episode, but uh, I am a big fan. I'm glad you're doing it. And uh, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.